0: to share this morning. Yeah, my name is Nick. Uh, I live in San Francisco, southwest part of the city, just a few miles north of here with my five kids. And my wife yeah, I did say five, which is a lot. You know, when you live in an affordable when you live in an affordable city like San Francisco, you might as well just have as many kids as you can, right? Um, I've been a pastor and a church planter, which is a person who helps start new churches in the U.S. and internationally. And my main job is I work with a couple different organizations that help new churches start in the Bay Area, but also in cities around the world. So that's my normal nine to five, but I also get the chance to help out uh, churches uh, around some time to time. So I'm really glad I'm able to do that. And I was able to connect with Rob through a mutual friend uh, and have lunch with him and hear a little bit about your church and his story. And it's been it's been really fun for me to even just to get to meet some of you this morning. Uh, like I said, I work with a lot of of new churches, so almost everyone I meet, you know, how long have you been here? And they're like, I oh, like six weeks, or I just came here two years ago, and I've met a number of people like, I don't even know how long I've been here, I've been here decades, which is really, uh, really awesome and fun for me to be around a church that has a history and legacy like this, so thanks for letting me be here. Uh, Before I start today, I just want to pray for Rob and for this uh, moment, pray that we would hear from God, and we're going to be in Acts chapter 17, if you want to go there in your Bible, Acts chapter 17, verses 10 through 15, but uh, let me pray first before we get started. Uh, Father God, it's good to be here with your people worshiping, it's good to come together and come with expectation that we might hear from you. God, we do pray for Rob and his family and uh, the loss of his father. God, we're grateful that he's able to be with his family and serve them in this time. And God, we pray for them in their grief. And God, we ask that you would bless Coastside Community Church and bless this moment. God, we come uh, eager to hear from you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So Acts chapter 17 verses uh, 10 through 15. I'm going to read these aloud. I use the ESV. I'm not sure what the the text is used here, so I apologize that's a little bit different. Uh, Text should come up on the screen as well, but let me read it for us first. Acts 17, 10 through 15. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea, and when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed, with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating, steering up the crowds. And then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea. But Silas and Timothy remained there, Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed." That's our text today. Uh, It seems like a pretty straightforward story, just sort of a description of some events that happened in the book of Acts. Uh, If you read it too quickly, it just seems like this brief stop that Paul is making on one of his journeys. Uh, If you're new to Christianity, you don't know who Paul is. He was a man who was once a significant leader in the Jewish religious uh, world, and he had an encounter with Jesus that radically transformed his life. And after Paul's encounter with Jesus, he left his position in the Jewish religion, and he would go on to become a leader in the early church, and uh, Paul, he traveled throughout the Middle East and, and Middle Eastern world, and he taught about Jesus, and he started new churches. And, and one of the things that happened a lot of times uh, when Paul would be out doing ministry is that what he would do would lead to conflict and tension uh, with the religious, with the Jewish religious establishment. And at times, even with political groups and economic power groups who were upset at people converting to Christianity, was upsetting the order of their day, and people were threatened by that. And so they would persecute Paul and early Christians. And uh, this happens time and time again in the book of Acts, including this text that we're looking at today. If you were to study right before the text we read, Paul had been in a city called Thessalonica, And this was this this major port hub city, and it was this import-export city in Greece. And by the end of these five verses, Paul's going to be in Athens, which is this other very significant coastal city. It's this cultural, educational hub of Greece. And almost by accident or some kind of random circumstance, Paul spends this very brief amount of time in Berea. It's a very modest city, Uh, nothing really that people know a ton about it. It's it's, it's not a coastal city, it's inland from the coast, it's at the foot of a mountain range. And Paul is there in Berea just because he's fleeing persecution. And and the Jews that are in Thessalonica, they're going to follow him to Berea, they're going to follow him to Athens. And so if you were to modernize the geography of what's happening, it's like Paul is in San Francisco, and his teaching angers some people, and San Franciscans are very sensitive, uh, and, and, he, and he's going to f- go to Los Angeles. And while he's going from San Francisco to Los Angeles, he stops in Fresno. Okay? just did anyone here from Fresno? Okay, if, we could say Modesto if you're from Fresno. We just take your pick. I'm, just, I'm teasing, I'm teasing, I'm teasing. And, and he stops here between these two very significant sort of important cultural cities. And he has this pit stop in Berea or Fresno. And maybe you wonder to yourself, what good could come from a trip to Fresno. Shouldn't we just skip over these verses, jump down to Paul's time in Athens, where Paul will argue with these important philosophers in this major city of influence? No, that's not not what Luke, the author of Acts, does. He includes this story in Berea for a significant reason. There's something unique about the Bereans, something unique about their story that we can learn from them. Their story was worth including in the Bible. And so today we're going to unpack what made this stop in Berea so significant and so worth studying. In each of the cities Paul is visiting, Thessalonica where he just was, Berea where he is in this text, Athens where he's going to go, whenever he goes into a new city he follows a very regular pattern. He first he'll go into a Jewish synagogue which is where ethnic Jews and converts to Judaism would meet for, it's like the church of, of, for Jews, would meet for religious instruction. And Paul would introduce himself. And if you know anything about Paul, he was uh, incredibly uh, credentialed. He was a pretty famous person in the Jewish religion. It was like he was educated by one of Judaism's most famous rabbis. It's like Paul went to the Harvard of Judaism. And so I guess Paul, he goes into the synagogue and he says, hey, you know, would you mind if I taught a little bit? And the synagogue leaders are like, man, that'd be great. Like, we don't get a lot of Harvard-educated rabbis here at Fresno. And and so Paul, he begins to teach. And the pattern is very similar in the book of Acts. Paul, he starts reading the Jewish scriptures, the Old Testament. And he explains how the Jewish people are waiting for a Messiah. And everyone's like, that's really good. And then how the scriptures, they promise that there's a Messiah coming. They're waiting for this Messiah, and he's going to come as a king, and he's going to rescue them. And and the scriptures prophesy this, and the people again, it's like, this is great, this is really good. Uh, And he's probably sharing something they've heard before that that they love hearing, and then things go in a really radically different direction. And so Paul begins to explain how the Messiah, how this Messiah that they're waiting for, longing for, that he's already come, and that they've missed him. His name is Jesus. He lived in Jerusalem. He died and he resurrected from the dead. And he uses the Jewish scriptures to prove this. And this would have been like super awkward, like record scratch moment at the synagogue. Okay? Uh, You can imagine people being like, wait, what? Like, are you saying that the Messiah has come and that we missed him? It would have been awkward for everyone. It would have been awkward for Paul. Uh, it, it's like, imagine the guest speaker coming and saying, all right, we're going to open up the Bible and we're going to teach. And guys, I'm convinced that the Bible teaches us that we should all become Scientologists. And you would be like, ooh, this is a little bit different. Um, I'm not so sure about that. Um, that's not what I'm going to do today. Um, but it's kind of what Paul does when he's visiting these synagogues. He co opts the synagogue and he teaches about Christianity which he believes is is truly the fulfillment of what they're longing for. It's the fulfillment of the Jewish scriptures. It's the fulfillment of the Jewish religion. But it's not what they believe to be true. It's not what the Jewish teachers teach. And so the message that Paul shares is in conflict with what the the message that the people believe. And this happens again and again. It's a pattern in the book of Acts. He goes to the synagogue. He teaches from the Hebrew scriptures. Someone begins to get upset, and then they try to drive him out or kill him or arrest him. It happened in Thessalonica, in Iconium, in Presidian Antioch. A handful of people believe, but most people band together to expel Paul to try to arrest him or kill him. And you see it again and again. But in Berea, it's different. It's one of the only times that this pattern doesn't happen in the book of Acts. Let me read again Acts 17, verses 11 through 12. It says this, Now the Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed, with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. The Jewish leaders in Berea, they don't try to shut Paul down. They don't try to kill him. They don't try to kick him out. They receive the message with eagerness. And while Luke says that in Thessalonica and Athens, he says like some people believed, in Berea, he says many people believed, like there was a, an increased fruitfulness in Berea. The response of the Bereans was atypical. They were much more receptive to the message of the gospel, the good news that the Messiah had come and that it was Jesus and he had resurrected as Lord. And so the question I want to ask today is why? What is different about the Bereans that made them more receptive to the message? There's something that we can gain from studying their story and how they were different that might help us also be more receptive to the message of the gospel. And if you read this very simply, it's that their view if you look at the text, it seems very clear that it's their view of the Bible, their view of the Scriptures, that made the Bereans different. It's not that people in the other cities didn't have the Scriptures. It's not that Paul preached better or worse sermons than the other places. What made the Bereans uh, receptive to the message was their own engagement, their own perspective, the own their way that they viewed the Word of God. They didn't just hear it on a weekend. No, the text is they engage with the Scriptures daily. And they checked what Paul said against the Scriptures. They even, like, studied against, like, hey, this is what this guy's saying. Is that true? Is that in here? And they checked against it to see if it was true. And that's why I believe Luke includes Paul, Time, and Berea in the book of Acts, to highlight for us the importance of our own view of the Bible, to present the Bereans to us as a model to emulate, so that we too, so that Coastside Community Church, so that we can be receptive to God's message to us as, as individuals but also as a community, Okay? So this morning, I just want to share a few ways that we need to view the Bible in order to be like the Bereans, as well as maybe a couple practical ways that might be able to help us begin or grow in our engagement with Scripture. Uh, But I don't want to jump past this story just just yet. I have one more kind of thing I want to talk about in this story. Uh, You may be this way, maybe you might know someone this way uh, that may just have a hard time imagining trusting the Bible or or, or viewing the Bible as something they should obey or believe. Maybe they have sincere questions maybe you have sincere questions about the bible's validity or its accuracy or historicity you might think it's just myths and there's no way that i can answer like all those questions about that today but i want you to know that god welcomes skepticism god welcomes skepticism i think he is much more honored by our sincere seeking and by asking with a pure heart difficult questions than by blind faith and by unquestioning obedience to religion Part of what is noble and commendable about the Bereans is that while they receive Paul's message with eagerness, it's an eagerness that's paired with skepticism, right? They check what he said against something. The Bereans don't take Paul at his word. No, they checked his teaching against the teaching of the Bible to see if what Paul was saying was really true, to see if his argument was accurately representing the scriptures. They were skeptical, And they wanted to know the truth, even if that meant they would have to change what they believed. That's the kind of eager skepticism that we want to have when we come to the text. We don't have to check our minds at the door when we come to church. You don't have to stop thinking critically when you read the Bible. On the contrary, I would say God wants you to be like the Bereans, to be searching the scriptures, to see if the message that you hear is coherent and consistent. And I know that if you were someone that grew up with the Bible or you grew up in a Christian family, uh, if you've been a Christian for a long time, you may not have as a natural uh, default anymore this healthy skepticism that the Bereans had. And this story should wake you up a little bit, right? Because the majority of the Jews that Paul engaged, many of them had, had this long-term commitment to the scriptures, to religion. They missed the Messiah. They, they rejected the message that Paul shared, and they ended up rejecting Jesus, there's this there's this difficult dynamic of being close to God or close to His Word, but at times that closeness can give us this false sense of security. And we end up being far, and our hearts become hard. And the Bere- and so instead of searching scriptures, sometimes people um, they they instead of searching Scriptures and living aligned with them, you take the Scriptures for granted, and you succumb to social pressure. For the Bereans, the social pressure of their culture it's very different than our culture. It was a religious culture, but it wasn't a Christian culture. And we all need to be like the Bereans, examining the Bible, making sure our faith is legitimate and it's living and it's not inherited or cultural. You can't inherit your faith. You have to believe it for yourself. And there's this, this, um, so whether you're religious or skeptical, there's a challenge for each of us in this text. However, whatever you're coming in today, if you feel a lot of confidence in the Bible, if you feel no confidence, I think there's a challenge for each of us to engage with the Bible in a way that makes us critically but eagerly receptive to the message God has for us. So in light of this, I want to share three truths about the Bible that are going to help us understand and maybe help us know how to engage the Bible and how we can understand it well. So here's the first one. The Bible is a divinely inspired book. should come up in the text. Uh, The Bible is in a divinely inspired book written by humans in human cultural forms. The Bible is a divinely inspired book written by humans in human cultural forms. You might know the Bible contains 66 different books written by a number of different authors over hundreds of years. It contains different genres of literature. There's poetry and prophecy and historical narratives. There's biography. And honestly, many of the challenges people have with the scriptures is that they don't remember, they don't realize that, the, that there's all these different kinds of literary genres and literary types in the Bible, okay? And so, for instance, if you got a text message, you would read that one way, then you got a letter from the IRS. Two different levels of engagement you would have with that piece of literature, right? Uh, you'd read a novel differently than you'd read a cooking recipe, In the same way, we need to understand the Bible includes all different kinds of writing, and all of it needs to be interpreted in light of its literary forms. We have to remember that. We can't just go to it and think it's all the same kind of thing. And while this book is very human, it's at the same time God's actual message to us. That's what the Bible says. He is the true, God is the true author behind and inspiring the biblical authors that we read in the Bible. The biblical authors themselves, they declare this book to be divine. They say this in 2 Timothy 3.16, it says this, All scripture is breathed out by God, profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. 1 Peter 1.21, it says this, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So the Bible, it claims to be divinely inspired, God-breathed, empowered by the Holy Spirit— And yet at the same time, it's written by humans. It's in human literary forms. It has human language. It's compiled by people. And maybe this feels confusing to hold these two things in tension. You may have more questions about how this works. But I encourage you to remember that the center of the Christian story is Jesus Christ. God in human flesh. Divine and yet human. Fully God and yet at the same time fully human. And the Bible has similarities to that. It is God's word, but at the same time, it's human. It's just like Jesus was. Second point. That I want us to consider today is that the Bible is a historical, doctrinal portrait of God's interaction with humanity. The Bible is a historical, doctrinal portrait of God's interaction with humanity. The Bible, even with all of its miracles, it claims to be history. The claims the Bible makes of itself is that it's true, that it's historical. It's not a collection of myths or legends. If you read the introduction to the gospel of Luke, who's the person who wrote the book of Acts, uh, Acts being kind of part two of, of Luke's uh, work, Luke and then Acts. In Luke's introduction to the book of Acts, he says this. Or sorry, into the book into, uh, to, to Luke, he says this. This is Luke 1, 1 through 4. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who were from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word Have delivered them to us. It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have the certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. Luke is really clear. He is attempting to write an orderly, accurate account of Jesus' life and and the life of the early church that's based on the testimony of people who witnessed the events in person. If you've ever wondered why in the Bible there's all these names, like Luke's Luke's Gospel in the book of Acts contains so many names. And this is Luke's way of saying, like, this person was there, and this person was there, and this person was there. And if, if you want to check in with this person, many of them who might still have been alive, you can go talk with them. You can go ask them, did this really happen? And so while the Bible is this historical book, and that's the intention of its authors, it's not a modern Western textbook. It's just not, it's not a science textbook. We need to be careful not to impose our own cultural standards of accuracy onto the Bible or into the various different kinds of biblical uh, genres or types of literature. Um, Again, a massive amount of confusion about this book and the Bible in general comes from trying to impose uh, scientific standards on the Bible, asking questions of the Bible that the Bible isn't asking of itself. Uh, The authors of the Bible, they shaped their stories. Like, they intentionally edited and shaped their stories, not just to tell history and not in opposition to history, but to also teach us theology. The Bible is historical, but it's also a doctrinal book. It's designed not just to report facts, but to teach us something about God and his interaction with humanity. And so it includes much more than just events and dates and facts. It's not a timeline, it's a story. It contains dialogue, poetry, narrative, speeches, depictions of vivid dreams and prophecies. And and part of the reason I use the word portrait when I describe the Bible is because a portrait is intentionally designed to tell you about a subject, right? It's not just designed to tell you what a subject looks like, but what that subject is like. A great portrait tells what someone's essence is. Not, Not just their physical person, but their personality, right? If you were to look at someone's driver's license, you would know what they look like. But you wouldn't know much more than that. It might even be, uh, my driver's license is terrible. Um, you might even get, get a, an incomplete picture just looking at a picture. What kind of person is this? Are they a kind person? Are they an angry person? Are they patient? A simple picture can only tell you so much, but a well-designed portrait can tell you much more. And, and the Bible in, in wants to teach you what God is like, what his interaction with humanity is like, so it's more like a portrait than a simple picture, Okay? And when I say portrait, I'm not even imagining like high school senior pick portraits. Uh, I'm thinking photograph, or I'm I'm thinking like paintings. I'm not even thinking photographs. And and I choose that again carefully because I think it demonstrates the the type of historical doctrinal book that the Bible is. And someone could say that a painting is less accurate than a photograph, right? You could imagine someone saying, yeah, of course, a painting is less accurate than a photograph. But that entirely depends on what you want to know about the subject. I want to give you an example. Raise your hands if you know what George Washington looks like. Anyone here know what George Washington looks like? You have an image in your mind of George Washington, okay? Keep your hands up, all right? Now, who here has seen a picture of George Washington? I promise you haven't. None of us have. First photographs were made in 1800, the year 1800. George Washington died in 1799. Just barely missed it. (laughs) So how confident are you that you know what George Washington looked like, though? right? This is as close as George, to George Washington as you're going to find a picture of. Will you bring up this picture? This is as close as you'll find to a picture of George Washington. No, no, the, 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 the next back, back one, the teeth. There we are. That's as close as you're going to get to a, a picture of George Washington. There's his teeth, uh, early photograph there. Uh, you can take that one off. We'll, go, we'll just uh, black that one away for a second. Now, you can conclude, right, that we cannot see a picture of George Washington, so it's impossible for us to know what he looked like. Right? We have a modern standard of accuracy, photography, and that, that standard didn't exist before 1800. And so we can't know what anyone looked like before 1800, therefore. No, that, that's stupid. That's ridiculous. That's foolish. We all know what George Washington looks like. And this kind of like hyperactive, scientific thinking, it presumes to be rational, but it actually might lead us to make a rather foolish conclusion. And holding to it too tightly, holding to a modern standard of accuracy, uh, might lead to a, a, like a stupid uh, conclusion because there are other standards of accuracy than photography. There are other standards, to other ways to depict what a person looks like. There's a verbal description, there's painting, there's sculpture. And each one of these standards has a, a, a different strength. It has strengths over photography. For instance, photography can give two-dimensional accuracy. Sculpture can give three-dimensional perspective. You can touch a sculpture with your hands. You can stand next to it and see what its size was like. And so I want to bring up a picture here of George Washington, a sculpture that was commissioned and produced before his death. So the artist was a French artist They traveled from Paris, and they took exact measurements of George Washington's body. They even made a mold of his face and then traveled back to Paris, built this statue. And it provides a really uh, accurate perspective on what Washington looked like from every angle. You could walk around it. You could tell something about George Washington through this sculpture that you couldn't tell in person. He's six foot two. You wouldn't know that if you looked at a picture, but if you stood next to me, you'd be like, this is a really big guy. And if you look at this form, this standard, it tells you something about him that even a photograph can't. And so again, we need to be careful not to impose our own current standards of accuracy that are highly influenced by a kind of material and mathematic perspective, which is all good, but it's just, it's limited, Uh, The ancient culture didn't have this same standard. But again, it doesn't mean it's not accurate. It just means it's different. It's a different kind of accuracy. Now, I want to show you the official uh, portrait, presidential portrait of George Washington. This is in the White House, this one here. Um, This is called the Lansdowne Portrait. It hangs in the East Room of the White House. It's by Gilbert Stewart. And it's a wonderful example of a historical doctrinal portrait, okay? Because this painting not only attempts to show you what George Washington looked like, it tells you something about his story. It tells you something about who he was, about what he was like, about what he accomplished, about what he stood for. If you were to look at this painting, if you, you would learn a great deal. You, if you zoomed in on the details, uh, if you zoom in on the books on the floor, which we can't do because I, I didn't know how to figure that out technology-wise, uh, if you look at the books on the floor, you'll see a copy of the Constitution. On the table, it's a copy of the Federalist Papers. These are the foundational documents of this new nation. In George Washington's hand, there's a saber, a big sword, reminding you that he was once a general and that he commands an army as the head of state. And there are many, many more doctrinal symbols and features in this painting. And if we impose our own standards, whether about accuracy or even about symbolism, we might miss some of the truth of this portrait. Let me give you an example. If you look in the upper right-hand corner, it's really hard to see. You may not be able to see it. In the upper right-hand corner is actually a rainbow. Okay. Now, I am not exactly sure what rainbows meant in George Washington's time. But I can tell you that they mean something different in modern California, right? They have a different symbolic meaning. And so we need to be careful that we don't impose our cultural standards and our understanding of symbolism on the Bible, or we risk misinterpreting it, okay? I could go on and on. It's an incredible amount of symbolism, uh, teaching about Washington in this picture. You could zoom in on any of the details, and the rabbit hole goes really deep. The artist spent a lot of time trying to teach about his subject through this painting. It's historical. It's accurate. It's accurate. It's meant to teach, but it's also a doctrinal portrait. And so is the Bible, okay? The Bible is like this painting. If you drill into it, if you dig down deep, you will find that the Bible, and this is Paul's point in Berea, that the Bible is all about Jesus. He is the focus of the portrait. And that leads to our third truth about the Bible, number three. The Bible is ultimately about Jesus, and we need to have his view of the Bible Again, the Bible is ultimately about Jesus and we need to have his view of the Bible. I wish we had the time to walk text by text through all of the ways that Jesus demonstrated his view of the Bible. It's really informative and incredible to, to study. How did Jesus interact with the scriptures? Jesus had this remarkably high view of the, of the scriptures. And there's a pastor, named Kevin DeYoung, and he, he wrote a book about Jesus' view of the Bible, and it's a pretty exhaustive study. And I just want to read to you his conclusion. Uh, it's a pretty long quote, so just bear with me, but I want to read to you uh, this conclusion after a scholar studied how Jesus viewed the scriptures. He said this, "'Jesus held scripture in the highest possible esteem. "'He knew his Bible intimately.'" and he loved it deeply. He often spoke with language of Scripture. He easily alluded to Scripture. And in his moments of greatest trial and weakness, like being tempted by the devil or being killed on the cross, he quoted Scripture. His mission was to fulfill Scripture. His teaching always upheld Scripture. He never disrespected, never disregarded, never disagreed with a single text of Scripture. He affirmed every bit of law, prophecy, narrative, and poetry. He shuddered to think of anyone, anywhere violating, ignoring, or rejecting Scripture. Jesus believed in the inspiration of Scripture down to the sentences, down to the phrases, to the words, to the smallest letter, to the tiniest mark. He accepted the chronology, the miracles, the authorial ascriptions as giving the straightforward facts of history. He believed in keeping the spirit of the law without ever minimizing the letter of the law. He affirmed the human authorship of Scripture while at the same time bearing witness to the ultimate divine authorship of the scriptures. He treated the Bible as a necessary word, a sufficient word, a clear word, and the final word. It was never acceptable in his mind to contradict scripture or stand above scripture. He believed the Bible was all true, all edifying, all important, and all about him. He believed absolutely the Bible was from God and was absolutely free from error. What scripture says, God says. What God said was recorded infallibly in scripture. Jesus submitted his will to the scriptures, he committed his brain to study the scriptures, and he humbled his heart to obey the scriptures. In summary, it is impossible to revere the scriptures more deeply or affirm them more completely than Jesus did. The Lord Jesus, God's son, our savior, believed his Bible was the word of God down to the tiniest speck, and that nothing in all those specks and in all those books in his Bible could ever be broken. Coastside Community Church, more than even the Berean view of the Bible, we want to have Jesus' view of the Bible, which is that the Bible is authoritative, that it is accurate, that it is powerful, that it is life-giving, and that it's ultimately about Jesus. This is why Luke highlights the Bereans in Acts 17, because they searched the scriptures, and in them they found Jesus, This is what God would want for us this day and every day, that we would engage the scriptures with a heart that that has eagerness, that has skepticism, but ends in finding and meeting Jesus Christ. And not again that we would just meet him once, that we just think about him here on Sundays, but God's intention is that we would daily meet and encounter Christ, regardless of what portion of of the Bible we are studying. Uh, my kids, they have this children's Bible, maybe you have had or seen it. It's called the Jesus Storybook Bible. Is anyone familiar with this Bible? It's, it's, really, it's really amazingly well done. It's very short, it's illustrated, and I love the, the subtitle of this kid's Bible. It says uh, the Jesus Storybook Bible, and the subtitle is Every Story Whispers His Name. What a great way to view the Bible, a book in which every story whispers his name. You might have to lean in, you might have to study, you might have to listen carefully, but if you engage the Scriptures, you will hear Jesus' name in every text. That is the goal of Scripture, that by engaging it, we would hear and meet Jesus. Now today, I just want to end uh, with a couple words of caution and something to maybe give us confidence as we uh, engage with Scripture. And the first thing is a caution, and I want to just say this, that it's possible to study the Bible regularly and ignore the life-changing truths it contains. That's a real possibility that the Bible even addresses. This is James 1, 22 through 25. It says this, But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and he goes away at once, forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, Being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. It can be really easy, friends, to hear and read the Bible and never do anything about what it says. That makes sense if you're just exploring Christianity, but if you are a Christian, if you imagine yourself to be a follower of Jesus, um, this is incredibly dangerous and foolish. Living this way, hearing sermons, never putting them into practice, reading the Bible, studying the Bible, but never making concrete changes in our life. It can build calluses on our heart that make us increasingly deaf to God. And this is the opposite of the eagerness that we see in the Bereans. This is the heart that the the Jews who were chasing Jesus to kill him had. They had studied the word, but their hearts had become hard, and they missed the message of it. And today, if you have been a hearer of the word, but not a doer, and I think we all have in certain parts of our life, I want to encourage you to do what the Bible would say to do in this situation, to confess your sin to God and also to a trusted friend. To, to, to our time of worship, say, God, this is an aspect of my life that I, I know I shouldn't do. I hear the word, but, I, but I'm not obeying you in. God, will you forgive me? Will you empower me to live by your spirit and change? I can Talk to a friend about that too. Uh, second thing I want to say, it's possible to study the Bible and to miss Jesus. This is the biggest danger. Jesus, he said this himself. Jesus said this to religious scholars in John 5. He said this, You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it's they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. We see many people like this in the book of Acts as well. They hear the good news of the gospel. They may read and study the scriptures, but they refuse to submit their lives to Jesus. Maybe because of pride, maybe because of fear. People engage Jesus but don't submit to him for any number of reasons. But I want to say that this is like someone giving you a life-saving bottle of medicine and only reading the label. Never taking the medicine, never receiving the life-giving gift that it contains. And if this is you today, if you're someone who's been on, on, on the margins of faith, if you've been studying and seeking God, and you're convinced that Jesus is who he says he is, that he's God incarnate, that he's the savior of the world, that he's the rightful king of your life, but you haven't trusted him, you haven't confessed him as your savior. You haven't trusted him as your king. Do that today. Be a doer of the word, not just a hearer. Don't let fear or pride or love of sin keep you from the life that Jesus offers. It's worth it. I grew up in a very nominal Christian family, had a radical conversion when I was 16, and God just radically changed my life. And it was hard. It was brutally hard. It was hard to give up relationships and friendships. And uh, But I would say, you know, 20 years in, it's worth it. Is worth it to follow Jesus. And if you have any question about that, one testimony, for what it's worth, it's worth it. It's worth whatever you give up. Now here's the final word of encouragement from Hebrews 4.12. This is an encouragement for us as we feel overwhelmed as we read the Bible. It says this, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. How is that encouragement? That sounds kind of intense. Because it tells us that you are not alone in your pursuit of God. No, God is alive and is actively pursuing you with his living word. When you hear and study and read the Bible, it is alive. God's Holy Spirit is active through his word to reveal to our own hearts, to show us our need for grace, to, make, to even cut us, to make space for Jesus, that he might come in and live in us and heal us and make us full of life. You don't engage the scripture alone. It's not a one-sided relationship. When you engage the scripture, you're engaging with a God that is seeking you, that is pursuing you in all of your life. And that should be a deep encouragement to us this morning. It's great to be here. I love God's word. I'm thankful to be here with you people. Um, God's word is alive. It points us to Jesus. Take encouragement today to engage God's word. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Thank you that you sent Jesus flesh and blood to live and to die and to resurrect from the dead that we might have hope. And thank you that even then, God, you gave us more. You gave us your word so that we could read the stories, so that we could have daily encouragement. God, we thank you for them. We ask, God, that you would renew us afresh, that you would bring a fresh love of your word into our hearts, that it wouldn't be um, boring, it wouldn't be... Purely obedience, God, but it would be delight as we engage with you in your word. It's in Jesus' name.